right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we are. We're actually going to finish the chapter today. Last week, we continued our look at Pastor Peter's scathing indictment against the false teachers. He speaks of their methods and their objectives, what they are doing and how they are doing it. He also speaks of their impending judgment and condemnation. And he does all of this with the heart of a pastor, one that cannot bear to see wolves prowling among his sheep looking for someone to devour, and one that cannot bear to see his sheep wander away from the flock since he knows that there is salvation nowhere else. In other words, what we have in 2 Peter chapter 2 is not an exercise in theory or even an exercise in mere theology. It is an act of love, and Peter warns his audience about the dangers around them. One scholar named Michael Green said this, Why has Peter expended so much powder and shot on the false teachers in this chapter? Because he's primarily a pastor. He's concerned to feed his master sheep. And he is furious to find them being poisoned by lust masquerading as religion. And I want to have the heart of a pastor. And I want to get the tone right in the text today. I want to be careful that you're not led astray by lust masquerading as religion. One of the things we saw in the text last week in the illustration and in the direct critique of the false teachers was that they make promises that they cannot deliver. And rather than leading to mere disappointment that the promises are not delivered, they actually lead to death. The false teachers promise freedom, but they deliver only slavery. They promise life, but what they deliver is actually death. And this is the way of the false teachers. But I want you to know that with Jesus, every promise is fulfilled perfectly. Every time Jesus makes a promise, he delivers it perfectly. You can take it to the bank. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. When he says, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God. Through us. One of the other things that we saw is that the false teachers prey on unstable folks. They prey on the immature by enticing, by luring, by baiting them with fleshly desires, by baiting them with sensuality. They basically say to those who are walking the narrow road of faithful obedience and sacrifice, they say, You don't have to do that. Come over here. Come over here with us, set down your cross, take care of yourself, indulge in every desire, and walk this broad, easy road with us, because it's going to get you to the same place the narrow road is. Can you not tell that what false teachers say is the exact opposite of what Jesus says? Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will repay every man according to his deeds. Or consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. ESV says the gate is wide and the way is easy 
that leads to destruction, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Now, I finished that quote in verse 14. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. One of the things the false teachers do is they say the broad road will lead to life. Come with us on that broad road. Friends, the lure of the false teachers is appealing. The bait that they present to you is tempting, and it is everywhere. We talked about this last week, how we see the the work of the false teachers in the prosperity gospel that is so prominent today, seeing Jesus as merely the means to wealth and health and prosperity, not Jesus as the true treasure, but Jesus as the way to real treasure. We see it in the licentiousness of deconstruction that says you can keep one foot in the faith and one foot in the world and still end up in glory that you can satisfy the desires of your flesh without feeling guilty, the guilt that the church were were to bring on you. We see it in the licentiousness of deconstruction, and we see it in easy believism or cheap grace. Oh, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get dunked, and you never have to worry about anything again. Live any way you want, and you end up in heaven, never have to worry about anything again. No call to sacrifice, no call to obedience, no call to growth in godliness. Just easy believism and cheap grace. We see the lure of the false teachers all around us, and we must be ready to resist. So I encourage you once again to be holy, and to be humble, and to be stable. Be holy, be humble, be stable by spending time in the Word, by knowing the truth, by being able to spot the false lures of the false teachers, by knowing the truth as it's revealed in God's Word. By spending time with his people, it's good for us to dwell together so that if we see someone wandering off the narrow path, if we see someone swimming over to take a bite of some of that bait, we can say, oh, no, 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 that's not good. That doesn't lead to life. No, 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 that will bring destruction. We can call each other back to faithfulness as we spend time with God's people. We spend time on our knees in prayer, asking God to help us, asking him to hold us fast, asking him to keep our eyes open and our ears attentive to his truth. And not be lured away by the false teachers. This idea of time in the word, time with God's people, time in prayer. Those are the ordinary means of grace. Those are the things that God has always used to keep his people close to himself. To keep his people on the narrow road. To grow his people in godliness and in holiness. We don't need some spectacular thing to happen. We need to invest in the ordinary means of grace. And allow God to grow us in those ways. Well this week we come to the end. It's some, in some ways at least the end of Pastor Peter's tirade against the false teachers. And he ends it on a high point with perhaps the strongest word of condemnation, the strongest word of warning yet, and then this graphic illustration at the end to top it off. And friends, I want you to know that we need to hear this today. Like we all in this room need to hear this word today. And the enemy does not want any of us to hear this word today. In fact, I think... He's going to be working overtime to distract us, to discredit the message, to discourage us in our walk with the Lord. In fact, I think one of the things that the enemy is going to do today is even use our own theology against us. Particularly, I think he will try to use our doctrine of eternal security against us. He will try today to pit the doctrine of preservation, the doctrine of eternal security, against the doctrine of perseverance in order to convince us that the false teachers are right after all. Or, or maybe more subtly convince us that we have nothing to worry about when it comes to this text. He's going to whisper to some of us in this room today, once saved, always saved. 
This text means nothing for you. Go ahead on down the broad road. Whatever this text means, it's not for you. Friend, you've got nothing to worry about. I think that the enemy is going to whisper those things under the guise of a misunderstanding of the doctrine of eternal security. And so we pray, O oh Lord, give us ears to hear the gracious warning that is for all of us in this text. Let's read it together. We're going to look closely today at verses 20 to 22 of chapter 2. But I want us to read the whole chapter together before we get started so that you get the flow and the flavor of the whole argument before we see its climax in verses 20 and 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained for greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desire. By sensuality, those who have barely escaped from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, a sow 
after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are profoundly grateful for your sovereign grace in our lives. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. You've cleansed us of our sins through the blood of your own Son. You've taken us when we were your enemies, and you've made us not just your friends, but your children by grace alone. You've promised to keep us to the very end when we see you face to face and dwell in your presence for all of eternity. Lord, help us to rejoice in that today and help us to respond rightly to it every day of our lives. Lord, use this passage today in the life of your people exactly as you intend it. That we would be applying all diligence to be growing in faith, in moral excellence, in knowledge, in self-control, in godliness, in brotherly kindness, and in love. That we would never forget the sacrifice of Christ and our purification from former sins. Oh Lord, let us be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and your choosing of us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. There's a lot here. I want to get the tone right. I want to be careful to get the tone right. And I want you to hear it. I don't want you to dismiss it as if it's not for you. I want us all to hear it. This is a word that I need. And this is a word that you need. Look at verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the word by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there are two nagging questions that are begged by the first part of verse 20. First, who are they? Who are they? That have escaped. Second question is, what's the nature of the escape? For if after they escaped the defilements of the world, who are they and what's the nature of this escape? The first question, who are they? There are a few potential answers and several biblical scholars argue strongly for their view and strongly against other people's views. One option is that he's referring to the recent or immature converts whom the false teachers are targeting with their enticements. In other words, maybe this is a reference to the unstable souls, the ones who barely escape from the ones who live in error. And it is the repeated use of the word escape that is the strongest argument that they, in this verse, refers to recent or immature converts. That's one option. Or is it the false teachers themselves? These guys who rose up among the people. These guys who denied the master who bought them. Let's remember that in 2 Peter, in 2 Peter, the threat is not from the outside in the form of persecution like it was in 1 Peter. Rather, the threat is from the inside in the form of false teaching. These guys look like sheep. They hang around with the sheep. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves, like Jesus said. The fact that the false teachers have seemed to be the subject of Peter's vitriol in this chapter is the strongest argument that they, in this verse, refers to those false teachers. But here's what I want to do. Rather than dig in, argue for one position or the other, I think it's best to consider that he may be referring to both. In fact, I think it's best to read this whole section, this whole chapter, as a very broad warning to everyone who might read this letter, to everyone who might read this letter, including the false teachers who are spreading lies, including the immature believers who might be tempted to follow the way of the false teachers and including the mature believers who are perplexed and discouraged and maybe even tempted to go that way themselves. In other words, Peter is here delivering a pastoral warning to all of them. 
And therefore, there is an application for all of us. Therefore, the application of this text is not limited only to false teachers. And we want to lean into this. And as we lean into this, we want to also acknowledge that there is always the possibility of change. As long as a person is breathing, there is always the possibility of change. There is possibility that those who once tasted would walk away. And there is a possibility that those who have once rejected would return. We want to recognize that there is always a possibility for change. And so, this text is a call for everyone to repent of their sins, to go on repenting of their sins, and to trust in Christ. To go on trusting in Christ. For there is salvation in no other name. Imagine if God would use this passage to bring a wandering new convert back to the faith. Imagine if God would use this passage to bring even a false teacher to his senses so that he repents and trusts in Christ and begins preaching the true gospel. Is that possible? Sure it is. Sure it's possible. Think of the Apostle Paul. Was he not, in his persecution of the church, a false teacher who was leading people astray, leading them even to his death, and did not God change everything for him and make him one of the greatest promoters, the greatest preachers of the gospel the world has ever known? Perhaps God will use that, this text to do that today. Is it impossible to think that God could call a wayward sinner back to himself? No, it's not impossible. Think of your own story. Think of my story. That's exactly what he's done. Miracle of miracles that God would save a sinner like me. So who are they? All of us. All of us, potentially. Second question is, what is the nature of this escape? Well, I want to say that it sounds in the text like they were converted. That they have escaped the defilements through the knowledge of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like they were converted, but the evidence would seem to contradict that conversion. Whether they are false teachers or wandering converts, these people are evidencing by their conduct that they were not true believers. Hear me on that. They are evidencing by their conduct that they are not true believers. Here at First Baptist Church Harrisburg, we believe this. That all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Throw that up there, Doug. The Baptist faith and message, our doctrinal statement says, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. That's a proper understanding and a proper declaration of the doctrine of eternal security is about the perseverance of those who have been truly converted. And this is not just based on a statement from the Southern Baptist Convention. This is based on the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, when he says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He says it similarly in Mark chapter 13. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. There is a doctrine of endurance. There is a doctrine of perseverance that goes right along with the doctrine of eternal security. In fact, look at the way Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. These golden verses that say, We know that all things work together for good, that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew... 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we could get caught up in in talking about what does it mean that he foreknew them? What do you mean he predestined them? What do you mean he called them? Right? We, We could get caught up in talking about that. And we should someday get caught up in talking about that. That's beautiful. But what I want you to see is that from the beginning to the end, Right From foreknowledge to glorification, nobody gets lost. Nobody gets dropped. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. It's not some of those he foreknew, he predestined. And some of those he predestined, he also called. And some of those he called, he also justified. No, no, no. Nobody gets lost along the way. Right in the middle of that, there's sanctification. The growth in godliness. That is the evidence... Of the foreknowledge and the predestination and the calling and the justification. All of this goes hand in hand. So what I would say, who are they? I would say that they are mere converts. Mere converts and not true disciples. And the evidence is their forsaking of Christ as we're going to see in a minute. What I really want you to see here is not the technicalities of this. What I really want you to see here is that the ones Peter is addressing are in this room. They are in this room. It's people like you. It's people like me who have escaped. It's people like you and me who have heard. It's people like you and me who have believed. We have joined the church. We've been baptized. We go to small groups. Peter is not here talking about outsiders, total outsiders, terrorists, and persecutors of the church. No, no, no. He's talking about church members. He's talking about church members who might not be truly saved. He's talking about church members who might not be true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about church members who might walk away. That might be you. That might be me. And so we need to hear this word. It is a call to the perseverance of the saints. It is a call to keep the faith. It is a call to walk all the way with Jesus, to go to the finish line, to no no turning back, no turning back. That's why we sing that song. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. This is the call for all of us in this room. It's a call to perseverance. Look what he says as he continues on in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So having escaped, they are entangled again in those old ways and they are overcome. That word overcome is the very same word that was used at the end of last week's text when he said, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Remember I told you last week that no man can serve two masters, but all men must serve one. These are not serving Christ anymore, but rather they are overcome and mastered by the enemy. He says in another place, they have denied the master who bought them. They have forsaken the Lord and they have gone their own way. They're not persevering. They're not continuing in the faith. They seem to me to be like the rocky soil or the thorny soil in the text that Joe read. Look at that again in Matthew chapter 13. 
The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no firm root in himself. He's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. In another telling of this, immediately receives it with joy. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. These are folks like you, like me, who have heard, immediately received, and sprouts of life came up. But then trouble came. Then temptation came. And they proved that there was no root. And they bore no fruit. You will know by their fruit. We're talking here at the end of verse 20 about apostasy about the turning away or the renunciation of belief. And that's the danger that Peter is warning about. And it's the danger for every single one of us. That we would, after we've heard, after we've escaped, after we've enjoyed life amongst the body of Christ, we would see the world out there with all of its enticements and we would say, I'm going back. I'm going back. You can have the narrow road. I like the broad road better. And I'm going to walk that road. And Peter, as a pastor, is saying, don't do that. If you do that, the worst, the, the, the second state will be worse for you than the first. It's a danger for all of us that we would commit apostasy. And this text is intended to guard us from that. But I want us to also to consider, is there hope for those who have turned away? Is, is there hope for someone who has gone back to the world? I want to say yes. From my perspective, from our perspective as humans, yes. As long as a person is breathing, there is hope of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as a person is breathing, we need to be preaching, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be inviting people to return to the Lord Jesus Christ. But hear me clearly, there is only hope for the one who has walked away in Christ alone. There is only hope in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not hope if they continue to walk that road. That's what Peter is saying here when he says the last state has become worse for them than the first. Why? Because they've heard. They've embraced it on some level. And then they have rejected it. Then they have rejected it. Then they have said, the world is better. I'll have the world. Sin is better. I'll have my sin. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because you saw the miracles. You had Jesus among you, and you did not repent. And you did not believe. Similarly, in Luke chapter 12, it says, And the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. From everyone 
who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. This concept makes today's text heavy for us, especially us in this room, who have heard, who've tasted, who've escaped on some level. That we would go back is absurd and dangerous. Peter wants us to feel the danger. Michael Green says, A servant who willfully disobeys his master is far more culpable than one who disobeys through ignorance. And there's not a single person in this room who can claim ignorance. And so this is heavy. And let me say this, friends. If your doctrine of eternal security allows for one to come to Christ and then walk away from Christ and still go to heaven, then you don't have a biblical doctrine of eternal security. If your doctrine of eternal security negates the commands in Scripture to persevere in the faith, to grow in godliness, to walk with Jesus, then you do not have a biblical doctrine of eternal security. That's why Peter says here, the last state of that one will be worse than the first. And he means it because he says it again in verse 21. Look at it. He says, For it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Friends, feel the weight of that. This is heavy for the people we know who have done this or are doing this. Some of your hearts are breaking as we talk about this text because you have a friend or family member who's doing this right now. Like the prodigal, they have wandered off to a far country. Like the prodigal, they are indulging in all the desires of the flesh and in all kinds of loose living. So this text is heavy. Be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than to have known it, than having known it, turn away from it. And so this should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to pray for the prodigal, that like the prodigal, they would come to their senses. I read a, a short outline of that whole parable that said the prodigal was first sick of home. And we have some who were once amongst us who just got sick of it. Sick of worshiping, sick of obeying, sick of sacrificing, sick of following Jesus. And they were enticed by the lures of the world and they went after those things. They moved off to a far country and they pursued all of those fleshly desires. Oh, we should pray that God would make them sick in that far country. That they would go from being sick of home to just sick. And then that he would make them homesick. You remember that in the story of the prodigal son? He remembers how the slaves, even the slaves in his master's household had plenty to eat. He remembered how good it was back home. And what did he do? He came to his senses and he went back home. He went back home and he was welcomed by his father. We want to pray that God would do that for folks we know who have wandered off. It should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to preach, to warn and exhort and plead. It should, it should drive us to preach that there is hope, but that hope is only in Christ. There's not another way. There's not a way out there. The world doesn't have a way to eternal life. Jesus Christ is the only way. So this is a heavy word and we want to feel it. 
on behalf of those we know who have done or are doing this kind of wandering. It's a heavy word and we want to feel it for ourselves. Because this text is not just about them. It's about us. It's for me. And therefore it should drive me to prayer. Prayer that God would hold me fast and keep me close to himself. It should drive me to perseverance. Perseverance in putting to death the deeds of the body. Perseverance in living by the spirit. Perseverance in walking with Jesus and growing as a Christian. It should drive me to remember that Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is my only hope because there's nowhere else to turn. It should drive me to perseverance in remembering that he is my great treasure. We sing an old song sometimes that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. It should drive me to perseverance in that, to look squarely in the face of Jesus so that these baits and lures from the false teachers, the enticements of the flesh don't look so great because he is so glorious. Feel the weight of these words. And then look at verse 22. Pastor Peter says, it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. That's a vivid illustration. More so for Peter's original audience than for us. And to understand it, we need to appreciate that dogs and pigs were despised by Jews in the first century. People with any kind of Jewish background in the first century would not have thought of your pet when they thought about a dog. They would not thought of like picking one up and cuddling on the couch with it. No, no, no. They're gross. They're dirty. They're dangerous. That's the way they would have seen dogs. Jesus uses dogs that way to describe the dark and the dirty and the dangerous. And pigs, they certainly would not have said, hmm, that looks tasty. They would have said, that thing is dirty. It's, it will, it's defiled. And I must stay away. It's dangerous in that sense. And so dogs and pigs have no positive connotations as Pastor Peter uses them in, in an illustration. Notice how this is a good illustration of what the folks are doing. The folks like us who are tempted to get relief, to get clean, and then go right back to that which made us sick, that which made us dirty. Do you get the idea there? The dog is sick. Something in its belly has made it sick, and it vomits it up, and it gets relief, right? It's been delivered. It's been delivered from that defilement. And then it goes right back to it and licks it back up again. And the pig has been cleaned up. It's been washed. It was, it was filthy, and it's been made clean again. And what does it do? Walk around and enjoy the relief? Enjoy the deliverance? No, it goes right back to the mud and gets dirty again. That's exactly what he's saying these folks have done. It's exactly what you and I are tempted to do. And it's absurd, right? When you, when you think about it that way, it's gross, it's nasty, it's absurd. And yet we're so tempted to do it, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to go back to that pile of vomit and lick it up again. Prone to go back to that mire and wallow in it once again. Prone to do that. And if you do that, it will be evidence that you are a dog. That you are a pig. 
I think that's probably the, the better way to read the illustration here is not the absurdity of the move that they would go back. It's not the grossness of what they're going back to. I don't think those two things are the priority here for Peter, are the emphasis here for Peter. The priority is the identity of the one who's doing it. A dog does that. A pig does that. And if you've met Christ, you're not a dog anymore. And if you've met Christ, you're not a pig anymore. He's radically changed you. He's radically changed your identity. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's what Christ does. And so you don't go back to the vomit. You, don't, you might be tempted to, but you don't because you're not a dog anymore. You might be tempted to go back to the muck, but you're not a pig anymore. He's made you a new creature. He's changed you. That's who you were. It's not who you are anymore. Look at 1 Corinthians verse 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 is huge. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of of our God. You were a dog. You've been changed. You were a pig, and you've been changed. And if you keep going back to the vomit, if you keep going back to the muck, prove that you've never been changed. Turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to finish up here. Turn to Romans chapter 6. It's not going to be on the screen, and I want you to see it. about this new identity that is ours in Christ and the importance of walking in that new identity and not going back to the old ways. Romans chapter 6, start in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, 
But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Friends, you, you're wholly new. You've been made new. Don't go back to those old ways. If you go back to those old ways, it'd be better if you've never heard. Better if you've never tasted. The latter state will be worse than the first. You leave the narrow road for the broad road, it will lead to destruction. So stay on the narrow road. Keep walking with Jesus. Persevere. No turning back. No turning back. So for application day, three things. Number one, this text should drive us to prayer. We should be praying for those who wander away, those who are wandering away, that they would see the filth for what it is, that they would see the vomit as vomit and the mud as mud, that they would remember the grace of God in Christ Jesus, that they would remember that even the slaves in the Father's house live better than this, that they would remember that Christ is the great treasure, that they would get sick of the world. Let's pray that they would get sick of the world and homesick for the kingdom of God. God can do that. He's done it for many of us in this room. So we should ask that he would do it for others. Let's pray for those who are wandering and let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for ourselves that God would guard us from the lures of the false teachers, from the lures and enticements of the world. That he would keep us satisfied in Christ, that we would come to see Christ as a great treasure and find our satisfaction in him. That we would really be able to sing, Christ is enough for me. That we would be able to say it over and over. Christ is enough for me. More than enough, in fact. We should pray for ourselves that he would hold us fast when our faith is weak, as we sang earlier. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. Trust that he will. So pray for those who are wandering away and pray for yourselves. Number two, preach. Let's preach the hope of the gospel. This text should make us preach the hope of the gospel, that we should be declaring to the world the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We should declare that judgment is upon all of those who remain in their sins. That there is no escaping judgment. Merely denying judgment, like the false teachers are doing, merely denying the reality of judgment will not suffice to deliver you from the judgment. Judgment is coming from the holy God. On the sinful man, and it is righteous, and there is only one escape. There is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ, who died in our place, took the punishment for us. It's not that God sets his justice aside. No, he pours out his justice on the head of his own son in our place. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for us so that we may be counted righteous in him, so that we may be accepted in him so that we may be forgiven of our sins. Christ died for sinners, and that's the only hope of salvation. We must repent and believe in order to receive that salvation. We must preach the hope of Christ in the gospel, and we must preach the sufficiency of Christ for the believer. We, we, we must tell folks that Christ is enough for them, so that when the world offers you something and says, this is better, you'll say, no, it's not, that's vomit. Time, I've spent enough time with that. The time already passed is sufficient for those kind of things. I've tasted that. It's gross. It's why, it's why I threw it up in the first place. Oh, this mud bath is so refreshing and good. No. It's not. Christ is refreshing. Christ is good. 
must preach that Christ alone is enough. And thirdly, we must persevere. We must set our minds and our hearts and our intention. We must, with all diligence, pursue Christ. No turning back, no giving up. Cling to him. He's our only hope. Listen, here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that you have been taught somewhere along the way or picked up from the culture somehow that if you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer at one point in your life and wrote a date in your Bible that you are never, ever in any danger. That, that, that you could come to Christ and then forsake Him entirely and end up in His presence forever in glory. That, that doesn't come out of the Bible. And you certainly can't square that with 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 22 that we've just looked at. If you are His, He will keep you. If you are His, He will keep you persevering to the end. If you are His, you will walk with Him all the way to the end. That will be the demonstration that you are His. And so I'm calling you from our human side of things to persevere in the faith. So that you have real hope. Real hope rooted in Christ. Let's stand together and pray. God, I'm, I'm even more confident now that the enemy is working overtime. To deliver false converts from the weight of this text. To convince folks who are truly lost, who are demonstrating their lostness by the way that they live, that they've got nothing to worry about. Father, I pray that you speak a better word, a clearer word, a louder word, and that that word would bring men and women and boys and girls to repentance, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to salvation that is found in him and him alone, to true conversion, to true discipleship, and that you would keep those true disciples persevering, keep them believing, Keep them obeying. Keep them growing by your grace, for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name.